Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everybody. It's certainly been a crazy week. Elon Musk seems to be doing everything he can to set Twitter on fire. First, he terminated half the company and then tried to hire some employees back, fostering confusion in the company and ensuring the enmity of all remaining. Then he launched into a plan to charge users for blue check marks that certified their identity, only to undermine the initiative by issuing gray check marks for free to media outlets like the New York Times, governmental entities such as the United Nations, and politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Please note that Twitter will do lots of dumb things in coming months, Musk tweeted by way of explanation. But perhaps the most dangerous thing Musk has done is attract the attention of the Federal Trade Commission. In 2011, Twitter signed a consent decree with the FTC requiring it to adhere to certain privacy standards. If it does not, it could be liable for hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in fines. We are tracking recent developments at Twitter with deep concern, an FTC spokesman said in a statement on Thursday. No CEO or company is above the law, and companies must follow our consent decrees. A revised consent order gives us new tools to ensure compliance, and we are prepared to use them. Still, the Twitter story took a back seat this week to FTX, which today filed for bankruptcy protection. FTX was closely allied with Alameda Research, a hedge fund controlled by Samuel Bankman-Fried, FTX's CEO. On November 2nd, Coindesk reporter Ian Allison published findings that roughly $5.8 billion out of $14.6 billion of assets on the balance sheet at Alameda Research, based on then-current valuations, were linked to FTX's exchange token, FTT. The news led Chengpeng Zhao, the CEO of Binance, FTX's biggest rival, to dump Binance's sizable store of FTT, causing a run on the currency. In a matter of days, FTX, which had once been valued at $32 billion, was worth nothing. The news was especially stinging to crypto fanboys because Bankman-Fried had been seen as a white knight in the blockchain space for his efforts to bail out companies like BlockFi that hit a wall in March when the industry took a downturn. It turned out that Bankman-Fried had secretly tried to bail out Alameda Research with billions in FTT tokens, a blow to the claims of crypto enthusiasts who insist that blockchain transactions ensure transparency. It's a mess, but we have just the person to sort it out. This morning, Connie and I talked to David Pakman, head of venture investments and managing partner at CoinFund, which has been investing in blockchain deals since 2015. A former longtime partner at Venrock, Pakman has invested in a number of notable crypto deals, such as Dapper Labs, the company behind NBA Top Shot Moment NFTs, and Flow, a proof-of-stake blockchain designed for NFT collectibles and crypto games. David breaks down what happened at FTX and where we go from here. But first, a word from our sponsor. Voban from Carta. Set up your next SPV in five minutes. Voban, the leading VC platform in Europe, was acquired by Carta to introduce super fast, low cost SPVs in the US, plus bring international funds and SPVs to the Carta platform. Voban from Carta is the all in one VC super app to launch your first 100K angel syndicate 
or manage your next $1 billion VC fund. Set up your fund, raise capital from your LPs, issue capital calls, and more, all in a few clicks. Together, they've structured 1,000-plus SPVs and raised over $2.5 billion through their platform. If you'd like to learn more, please reach out to www.voban.io slash strictlyvc. That's www.voban.io slash strictlyvc. So, David, gosh, when was the last time we talked? A year and a half ago. Was it a year and a half ago? Oh, my gosh. So very different times then. You were the person who explained to us what NFTs were. I mean, we had no idea at the time. It was really blowing up. Now, of course, we're talking on a day where one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world just declared bankruptcy. It's declaring bankruptcy for 130 additional affiliated companies. I had no idea that FTX was involved in so many companies all have filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy he's he's resigned his position as ceo the news i guess considering what's been happening this week was not a complete shock but what did you make of this latest development i think it's terrible i think it's absolutely terrible on a bunch of levels not on every level but on a bunch of levels so what is terrible about it well it was an entirely avoidable tragedy this failure of the company was brought on by a bunch of flawed human decision-making, not brought on by a failing business. Mm -hmm. The core business was doing great. In fact, it was highly profitable, growing, even in a bear market, doing really well. One of the most used non-US-based crypto exchanges and with a big derivatives business. Really interesting company, wrote a lot of really good software and was growing. And that was working completely fine. It's not like it was running out of capital or a victim of the macro environment, but its leadership with almost no oversight, apparently, made a bunch of terrible decisions and did things really wrong. And that's what's bringing the company down. So the tragedy is how avoidable it was. And think about how many victims there are. We don't know if there are hundreds or thousands of customers will be affected. Are they going to get 100% of their funds back or not? We don't know that. The employees and the shareholders all super harmed. So it's terrible. I also think it's super negative for headlines and the reputational harm to the entire crypto industry, which already suffers from the questions about like, isn't this a scammy place with scammy people? And this sort of Enron-esque meltdown of one of the most highly valued and arguably most successful companies in the space, it's just really bad. And it will take a long time to dig out of it. So I'm super disappointed by that. But what's the positive? The technology did not fail. The blockchains did not fail. The smart contracts were not hacked. Everything we know about the tech behind crypto continues to work brilliantly. So it would be different if this was a meltdown because of flawed software design or the blockchains aren't scaling or big hacks and people are injured because of poor technology. That's not what's happening. So there's some bright spots, which is that, hey, the long-term promise of the software and the technology architecture about crypto is intact. It's the people who keep making mistakes. And we've had two or three pretty big 
human-generated mistakes this year. So, David, just for our broader audience who might not fully understand what FTX did wrong, essentially, this was a company that was taking its customers' assets and borrowing against them to an extreme degree, like more than half of the assets that it collected is ultimately what caused this problem. Once it was discovered how interrelated it was with some of its other properties, particularly Alameda Research, its trading desk, once that became more publicly known, Binance, its crypto rival, essentially saw an opening to take it down. Is there a way to articulate better than I have what just happened? I think it did a great job. We should first say we're recording this on Friday, November 11th, just a few days after this happened. So the facts are not entirely known to all of us. Right. And we're all speculating on what we've read. I don't have firsthand knowledge about what they really did or didn't do. So I've read the same stuff you have. And I think it is a combination of a few things thus far that we know. One thing is apparently Alameda, well, they had a, they had a related party transaction, right? They had mm -hmm. some relationship between FTX and Alameda that maybe was not known to all shareholders, employees, nor to customers. And it sounds like they took FTT, which is their token that was held in great amounts by Alameda, and they pledged it as collateral and took big loans in fiat against that. So they took a highly volatile asset and they pledged it as collateral. And one could imagine if a board of corporate executives knew about that or investors, someone would say, hang on, right. what happens if FTT goes down by 50%, <laughs> which happens in crypto with high frequency, right? So why were we pledging this super highly volatile asset? By the way, something like a half a billion dollars worth of the asset is held by our biggest rival. What happens if they dump it in the market? Could that affect us? So just the act of borrowing against it was ill-advised. And then it sounds like they also took the proceeds of that borrowing and they invested that in highly illiquid assets. Like maybe they used these proceeds to rescue BlockFi or all these other private companies that they recently bought. So it's not like they could quickly sell out of those if they needed to return the proceeds of their borrowing. So that's just one set of issues and that would be bad. But they also apparently were using customer funds and loaning that out or maybe even loaning it to their trading arm. So all of this stuff is stuff that I think a board, if they knew about, one would hope, would be like, no, 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 this are total, total non-starters. We're not doing any of that stuff. Too high risk. And I think one thing I said in one of my tweet storms about this is it is hard enough to take the risk to become a founder and to start building a company. And probably the greatest risk you face is on the first day that you start your company because nothing's working yet. But as a company starts to work, it's sort of the job of the founder to retire risk over time. Mm -hmm. This is why it's easier to raise more money the bigger a company gets is because your investors believe that there's now less risk than there was when the seed investors put their money in where everything could have gone to zero. So the idea that this late stage of a company's life, it was a young company, but still they were growing really fast and a lot of revenues and had a profitable business model, that you would take risk that could bring the entire company down in hours is just so anathema to the way most startups are built. And that, I think, again, is just a huge failure of governance and of leadership. Why take this amount of unnecessary risk? It just seems so preposterous to me. It's mind-blowing. I mean, I guess it's hubris. He just really leaned into this idea of being this white knight saving BlockFi Voyager. I, obviously, I can't get inside his mind to understand it. But the fact that there was no board here is mind-blowing. And so, in fairness, you are 
managing director with CoinFund, which is an early investor. Many, many, many investors in this company probably had a bigger stake. I don't know if you want to talk about how big your stake was in, in FTX. Yes. So I joined CoinFund a little bit more than a year ago. And so the investment that the firm made in FTX was a long time ago, long before my time. And it's a tiny, tiny amount. We're barely on the cap table. We didn't hold any FTT tokens, but we held a tiny, tiny amount. And then I actually wasn't in the room when the conversation was had about what do we think of the company? So I wasn't present to know. But I will address your big question is, what about the governance? Yeah of this company. And I come from a traditional tech investing background where 98% of the time, maybe 99% of the time, there's just a standard set of governance that every entrepreneur agrees to when they take venture capital, which is there's going to be a board. The board is going to be made up of investors and employees and maybe outside experts. There's going to be a set of controls. The controls usually say things like, you have to disclose any related party transactions. You can't shuffle coconuts between one company and something else that we don't know about. The board has to approve things like whenever you're going to pledge assets as collateral for borrowing, can't issue new shares without us knowing about it. Just basic stuff that's been going on for decades. The fact that none of that was present here is just mind boggling. And uh, what I've been super hopeful of as a result of this sort of Enron-like moment Mm. in crypto is that whatever loose norms there were about not giving that level of oversight and governance as part of investing goes away immediately and that the investors demand it and get it. Well, I would think maybe even regulators will have some say in this, but if it's any consolation, what was really surprising to me is even Sequoia Capital, which had put hundreds of millions of dollars into this company, owned like 1% or less than 1%, which is again, also mind blowing. But David, everything is so highly correlated here. So 130 companies affiliated with FTX just declared bankruptcy. Crypto investor digital currency group I'm reading is giving an equity infusion of $140 million to a company within its portfolio called Genesis Global Trading because Genesis's derivatives business has about $175 million locked in funds in its FTX trading account. How bad is this going to become? Again, realizing that you're relatively new to CoinFund with Venrock for a dozen or plus years before this, what percentage of its own investment portfolio is being impacted here? 100%? Okay, so let's see. Maybe the question you were asking at the end there was how much are we CoinFund impacted and it's negligible because we had such a tiny investment in this company from one of our funds. We held none of our assets at FTX, either US or international. So we have effectively no meaningful impact at all. And then I asked an overly complicated question, but the point was that everything is so correlated. So even though you might have minor exposure to FTX directly, what percentage of your portfolio is being impacted by the fact that it's collapsing? Yeah. So first, I don't think any of us know the full long-term impact of what's happening here because there's some contagion, right? Like how many other funds and companies and investors have assets at FTX and how long will it take to get those funds back, right? One must assume that the entire thing goes into a massive bankruptcy proceeding. This takes many months or years to unwind. And so there'll be this uncertainty, not just about when you're getting money back, but how much you're getting. And so your level of exposure pain is somewhat unknown, I think, today. And that explains maybe the DCG news you pointed to, that they're cash infusion to one of their own companies because they had a bunch of assets that aren't coming back for a while. So I don't think we know the extent of the impact. The overwhelming majority of crypto companies, like the startups that we invest in, they're not trading on FTX. And so they weren't customers here. But one thing that FTX was very useful for 
was providing a launching pad for tokens to become liquid and then either making a market for those tokens or at least providing a place for them to trade and providing liquidity. So a big part of crypto today is not just raising equity capital, but creating tokens and using tokens as an incentive mechanism to build networks or using tokens as a security mechanism to safeguard networks and using tokens as a way to raise capital by selling them to investors. And all of those things require at some point tokens to become liquid, trade on exchanges. And FTX was one of the largest places where those tokens traded. Now you lose that. And I think that really is the biggest impact to crypto startups. And I know that Coinbase obviously is its US rival, but it's much more cautious, I think, about listing coins is my impression. Exactly right. And so they list way fewer. And that's probably a really good thing. But what you just pointed out will be a big reset, especially for US-based crypto companies, knowing that the bar is even higher and the places where you can list them in the US even fewer. And outside the US, I mean, FTX have a US entity, but they largely operated outside the US. And so that exchange will not be a place that you can list tokens anymore. David, if I could just ask about governance again, you said that one of the major failures with FTX was a failure of governance and leadership. And you pointed to the fact that there isn't a board. I've seen that a, a number of VC firms have made investments in these crypto companies through simply buying coins and not buying equity in the companies and uh, therefore not really playing a, a role in governance in these companies. Do you expect that that will continue and that VC firms will continue to simply buy coins and not actually participate in the governance of these companies? Thank you for pointing that out, Alex. I think absolutely we should expect a reset on both equity and crypto-based governance that either is in place or becomes in place when an institutional buyer makes a reasonably sized purchase. Just because they're tokens doesn't mean there's no governance. A lot of times, token-based ecosystems are governed by foundations, and those foundations have boards. And sometimes crypto networks are governed by a governance protocol or process where people with more tokens get more votes. And so there is governance associated with token ownership. It's not always zero. But still, your question is a great one, which is won't investors demand more say, or at least some protections against bad action, right? That's the basics of what's needed here. And this is what I'm hopeful of and pretty excited about. I mean, in the early days of dot-com, you had a lot of hand-waviness like, oh, but tech's different, dot-com's different, it's all different this time. And of course, it was not. All tech companies require this oversight of traditional non-tech companies needed too, boards and investor protections and good behavior by executive teams and an, and an ability for boards to fire bad actors. So we should expect a reset and hopefully no more of this like, well, crypto is different. We don't have boards and you don't get those rights. Hopefully that's gone away in the last 24 hours because it, it's not different. It shouldn't be different. And there should be governance and protections for token buyers as well. David, just talking about the legal ramifications, as you said, there's a lot of money that's tied up right now. We'll see how long this bankruptcy proceeding goes on. Knowing what you'd know about the way that venture firms are structured, the protections they have for their directors and officers, obviously there wasn't a board here. So that's maybe one deep pocket that shareholders can't necessarily go after, maybe not shareholders, but FTX customers. But I am wondering if you don't mind just totally speculating here, are the investors at risk in some way because they did kind of abdicate their responsibility? 
I do mind speculating because it's above my pay grade. I honestly have no idea. I just don't know anything about shareholder lawsuits mm-hmm. and where liability sits. Um, not a lawyer. So it will be fascinating to watch where the tentacles of the bankruptcy proceedings reach to try to make customers whole. I think that's usually its goal is to make the creditors whole as much as it can and do it equitably. So there's a lot of questions about where that will go. Also, as you point out, there are a lot of different divisions and companies affiliated with. I saw Fortune did this incredible graphic of the sort of investment. Where did SBF and FTX's funds go? And they went to a lot of places. They've been invested in a lot of different places, right? Into VC funds, into other companies, obviously huge amount of political donations. So I'm, I imagine, but again, I don't, I'm not an expert. I don't know anything really about bankruptcy. I imagine that the bankruptcy process is going to look to recover every one of those dollars that were sprinkled around that are still around in effort to try to pay back the creditors. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of, a lot of ramifications, right? That's pretty serious. Right, right. It's really hard to reconcile. So just in terms of your own portfolio right now, what are you doing? Because there is this long game of wait and see. How do you protect yourselves and your portfolio? Well, the first companies? thing we've done is to reach out to our 120 portfolio companies in crypto and see how they're doing. Right? These are high anxiety moments with high uncertainty, a lot of events you don't control. Everyone's feeling anxiety and disappointment. Uh, the overwhelming majority of startup founders and their employees are good actors. They're building important technology. They're more mission-driven than mercenary, at least the type that we invest in. And they don't want to see crypto as an industry get tainted, but that's what's going to happen here. So we've been reaching out, making sure everyone's okay. As I mentioned to you, I don't think there's a huge amount of contagion that spreads to our portfolio just by the nature of where we've invested. It's more of our friends in the market who are also investors. Mm -hmm. Some of them are way more affected than we are. And that's, I think, where we're expecting early ramifications to be seen. But then another question you might be asking is how does this affect our day-to-day business of making investments going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I did see the news that you were looking to raise a new $250 million fund after closing a $300 million fund three months ago. And I did, of course, wonder if you're going to have to put a pin in that or how this impacts LPs thinking. We've talked to a lot of our LPs in the last 48 hours. And first, I think most people are processing. They're asking, like you're asking, like, what happened here? And what's your view on why and how? And how likely is stuff like this to happen again? So that's the first set of questions. As I said, I think late stage capital will freeze up for a little bit here. The dust really needs to clear. And it's unlikely that capital is attracted to (laughs) tragedy like this and value destruction, right? Like that's the big thing. But one immediate place that it also affects is the valuations of startups. Valuing startups is an imperfect process done by investors in non-liquid markets. And one way that's done is to look at comparables. And one of the brightest star comps that just about everyone in crypto pointed to is, well, if FTX is worth $40 billion, we're worth X. So you take the most highly valued venture-backed crypto company and it goes from 40 to zero, <laughs> who's the new ceiling 
of crypto value. Now, there are plenty of crypto tokens and projects worth way more than that. Ethereum's worth a whole lot more than 40. But my point is that you lost FTX as a comp. And so now you've got Coinbase really as the bright shining star in the US. And they're still 11.4 billion as of this second. Wonderful company. But just that loss of, of uh, FTX as a comp immediately impacts late stage valuations. And so our view is that even in addition to the reset in pricing that's been a result of the macro, now you have this, which is going to lower our appetite for price making early stage investments. And I think that's really where startups will feel it. Are LPs asking about the kinds of governance that you have with your existing portfolio? And have you made any changes in the way in which you're managing those investments? They've been asking that question even long before this happened, because I think LPs are used to a standard of governance. And as you point out, Alex, there's a reputation in crypto of looser governance. And boy, here's the shining example of why that's a bad thing. So they've been asking that for a while. This is maybe one advantage that I bring to CoinFund is that I spent 15 years as an entrepreneur running venture-backed companies and 13 years as a venture capitalist expecting some basic principles of governance to be in place and basic protections and being surprised that that's not 100% the case in crypto. So we have taken the point of view that we should always have standard protections. Obviously, that did not exist in the FTX example. So I think this gives us more ammunition to win that argument every time. Not saying we've won it 100% of the time, but there's just no reason that we should not have basic investor protections. It's good for everybody. And so I think LPs are probably expecting uh, even more adherence to that principle. Sure. And David, I don't want to keep you too long, but I did really want to ask you about a sub trend in your world, especially since, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you're the one who let us know in the first place what an NFT was. So this centers on NFTs as intellectual property. I took an interest in it because I had flown to Lisbon last week to interview the co-founders of Board Ape Yacht Club. Unfortunately, both of them ended up getting sick, one of them at the very, very last minute. But I thought it was really interesting what's happening there. So essentially, we started off with NFTs as a sort of div digital image. Then there was NFTs as this utility. Board Ape Yacht Club said, if you buy one of our NFTs, you get membership into this elite club of ours. Now, Board Ape and many others are saying there are IP rights that are associated with these NFTs. So if you buy one of our NFTs, you can then on the back of that NFT build your own business. I mean, maybe some small percentage of that business flows back to the creator because of its royalty rights. The whole beauty of these NFTs is that they have these smart contracts underneath them and they're forever traceable. But essentially, you can set off on your own. And so Board Ape has three examples that it always refers to. So I don't imagine that this is happening very widely. They point to Snoop Dogg has a clothing business. There's a guy in Long Beach that has started a, a small restaurant that could be gone in a year. And there's another example. I think it's like a media property. But I wondered, how big a trend do you think that will be? And then I have a, a related question about whether those rights should be completely opened up so that the creators shouldn't necessarily always make some percentage of that sale in perpetuity. Yeah, great topic to dig into and thank you for bringing it up. One of the most exciting things about NFTs is that it creates or allows one to create a perpetual royalty right for the creator. Because in some industries that exists, but in many it does not. Like in music, a uh, songwriter, 
has a perpetual royalty associated with a song. And a recording artist has a perpetual royalty every time that recording is sold. There are rights and payments that are due. Those rights follow the material. But in the fine art world, this is not true, right? An artist generally gets paid on the first sale. And then as a work of art appreciates, you've heard this argument a hundred times, why NFTs are cool, and the art gets resold, they don't benefit from that appreciation. So duh, like don't kill the golden goose. You want creators to have economic incentive to create, and why shouldn't they participate in the appreciation of their work? This is one reason I love NFTs. So this sudden short-sighted conversation about like, hey, maybe we should not respect artist royalties and try to elbow them out of the contract and try not to pay creators after the second or third sale is so short-sighted and silly. And of course, why would anyone support it? There are some exceptions that maybe make some technical sense. Way, way back when the internet was first becoming commercialized, there was an argument about copies of songs, MP3 files. And the argument was, look, every time a song is copied, a royalty is due, just like every time a record is made and sold, a royalty should be paid. But the technical folks among us pointed out, like, yeah, that generally is true. But for a song to move over the internet, it actually gets copied many, many times Mm -hmm. as it moves from server to server. And that's just like a, a technical way that the song gets copied. And so there shouldn't be a royalty due for each one of those sort of temporary copies paid. And ultimately, that logic prevailed. And there is not a royalty that needs to be paid every time a song moves through the internet, but it's really between buyer and seller, it does. The same arguments being made about NFTs, sometimes in exchange is like a market maker, like you want to sell one and I want to buy one. Mm -hmm. And in a split second between that, an exchange buys it from one and sells it to the other. Should they have to pay the royalty to the buyer and seller paying the royalty? And so there are some exceptions, I think, that are due here that make some sense. But boy, the idea of really depriving the creator of their royalties over the life of their work is so silly and should be eradicated from people's thoughts. Yeah, I just saw that. I mean, so so to me, of course, like I said, I don't follow the space very closely. So it was sort of a a new concept to me, but I'd seen this copyright classification and it was Coco where a creator can share content for any purpose, even commercially, and then anyone can use it in any way they like, including to reproduce, publish, modify the work. The idea is that the more derivative art that comes into the world that's associated with that NFT, the more valuable it becomes. If it's not limited to the NFT owner and you're saying you think that's BS. Well, no, there's some subtlety here, right? There is this question of derivative works and when are royalties due. If I take Mm -hmm. an NFT and then like remix it, how much of the remix is done like this we had this question about sampling way back in the early days of music sampling right if a song has a hook in it that's like really awesome and they build the song around does 100 percent of the royalties go to the original sample artist or does a portion of it we can work those questions out i think like derivative works maybe it's not 100 percent of the rights but what i'm referring to is the notion that nft exchanges are going to decide to deprive artists of their otherwise due royalty just to make their transactions appear cheaper is just a short-sighted and silly thing to do. Right, right. That's interesting. Yeah, I know far less about that. One other related question that I had wanted to ask those guys, and I'd like to ask you because you're on top of this stuff is, so Board Ape Yacht Club is owned by a, a firm called Yuga Labs, and it was accused without proof, I can't remember how long ago, by this hacktivist group, Anonymous, of intentionally putting Nazi imagery in its NFTs, a claim that it strenuously denied, of course. But I do wonder, what is to protect brands from their users putting secret Nazi imagery in their NFTs or doing other nefarious acts? I don't quite understand how that whole thing works. 
It's not something I've thought a lot about. I read about that loosely. I, I obviously have a strong point of view against Nazis. Well, that's so specific, about, like, but, but I mean, what if they <laughs> what if they just create an unsavory business that's associated with the NFT? So maybe one question you're asking about is what type of brand protection right. is there associated with NFTs? And I don't know that I've thought a lot about it, except to maybe say that the standard of what an NFT is, the definition of what an NFT is, is enlarging over time, because at the end of the day, the, an NFT is, right, it's a bunch of code behind some piece of artistic expression, and a bunch of rules can be codified in the software. One of them is a royalty, right? Every time this thing is sold, 20% of the sale goes back to the artist. That's kind of cool. But maybe you could also codify different rules about where the work can appear or what work it can or cannot be associated with. I haven't thought a lot about that, but it is software. And one of the advantages people talk about with NFTs is when you buy it, you own it. And as the owner, you can decide what you want to do with it. Mm-hmm. And what is that? And maybe a hard question you're asking is, well, suppose Disney makes an NFT and it's a Star Wars NFT and you buy it and you own it. Can, can you take it and have it appear in some really nasty places? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean for the Disney brand? And I think that's a good question that I don't have a good answer to. But this is something that IP owners think a lot about because they lose some control by selling a permanent good to a user. Yeah, I just figured as things move in that direction, it, it opens up all kinds of possible scenarios. Okay, one last question, I swear. When we talked, we talked about NBA Top Shot, which was going gangbusters. I think these digital trading cards were selling in the th- hundreds of thousands of dollars at their peak. Now they're in the single digit thousands of dollars. Board Ape Yacht Club uh, NFTs similarly have fallen in price, not quite as much. I mean, some people paid truly crazy amounts for them. One person spent $3.4 billion for his or her Board Ape but they haven't dropped to nothing. I'm just wondering, what do these trends tell you? Well, I think first, the uh, prices rise and fall <laughs> for all sorts of assets, for all sorts of reasons. And it's not surprising to know that some things that go up come back down, mm-hmm. especially when they're accompanying a, a crash in crypto prices a cr- and, and a global economic meltdown and the stock market's down too, right? And we have inflation and all the things we have. So that's th- not surprising that Asset prices are cyclical and NFTs are digital assets. Why shouldn't they be cyclical too? So I think there's some logic to that explanation, but I choose to look at not just pricing of the assets, but activity around them. How many people are buying them? How much do they spend? And what's their retention characteristics? Do they stay on? And NBA Top Shot still exists. It's still a robust business for both Dapper Labs and the NBA. You can look on chain and see how much activity there is and literally look at Crypto Slam and see what the daily, weekly, and monthly trading volumes are, still in the millions and tens of millions of dollars. And uh, they've also launched NFL All Day, which is one of the most successful new products launched this year. Really great numbers around that too. So despite crypto prices and NFT prices having fallen Mm -hmm. so much, consumers are still resonating with this. And there is some argument that lower pricing is good also because it can let more people participate. So I'm long-term bullish. I still think we're in the very early days of NFTs that are only about two, three years old in the mainstream. And I think there's going to be a lot of them and consumers are going to spend a lot of money for them. (laughs) Great. I had one more thing for you that we didn't talk about. That's probably a good part of our first conversation. So we talked about how the whole FTX thing is basically human failure, Mm -hmm. right? Like a lack of governance, yes, but poor decision-making and high risk by a small group of people, maybe one or a few few people. A lot of what DeFi, decentralized finance, is all about is eliminating the risk associated with human failability. So actually, we go back to 
traditional Wall Street and we have long-term capital management and we have Lehman Brothers and we have a lot of other traditional financial services companies that melted down also because inappropriate risk-taking, lack of transparency and controls, too much debt, these mistakes happen. But a lot of the mission of DeFi is actually to codify in software what's allowed to happen between related parties and to make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. So it is possible for you to trade one asset for another on a decentralized finance protocol like Uniswap, where there's no company you need to trust behind it. There's a buyer-seller transaction that's established immediately of your willingness to sell and someone's willingness to buy. And there's no risk in between that someone's going to take the funds in between and go fly to the Bahamas or borrow against it. So the mission of crypto and what a lot of people are in it for is to actually prevent this from happening, which is, of course, the terrible irony here. Yeah, <laughs> That, I think, is important to point out is if you don't like what happened and it doesn't just happen in crypto, actually, crypto is a potential solution for the, these temptations of governance and bad acting. That's a, that's a great point. I frankly still need to understand that better, but I, I appreciate mentioning that. And in addition to Uniswap, I've of course heard of that brand, but who are the other big players here? There's a bunch of protocols because these are not really companies. They're protocols mm -hmm. that are decentralized and, and governed by its users. Compound, for instance, is an OG DeFi protocol that helps enable loans. And Uniswap is a decentralized DEX, a decentralized exchange, so that your people can buy and sell digital assets without you know some company custodying the assets in the middle. Right. And so where no trust is required. There, there are lots of them. And they have different niches, essentially? Yeah, yeah. Some enable fractionalization, some enable group ownership, some enable trading, some enable borrowing. In fact, just to bring the conversation full circle back to NFTs, suppose you buy a bunch of NFTs and you don't want to sell them, but you'd like to borrow against them because they're worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Well, rather than trying to find a human who's willing to loan to you or a company that sits in between you and another human, there are new, they're called NFT financialization protocols mm. that will let you lock your NFT into a smart contract and let you borrow from another user without risk that you'll default or they'll default. And this is, again, fully automated. And so I think that's an interesting long-term direction that actually has lower risk than the human fallibility that we're seeing. Well, I should already know more about this, but maybe we can talk again in a week and you can, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I will come back. I'll come back anytime. I love talking to you. love what you guys do. You're an important resource for all of us. So appreciate it, David. Great talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Connie. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.